Well, how's a reading like that to really get your heart pumping tonight? What a great part of the Bible. I'd love to see how many of you guys have highlighted any of those verses or stuck them on your fridge as some of your favourites. Well, how about I begin, uh, but we'll start by asking God for help in understanding uh, all of these names that we've just heard uh, before us and in understanding the bigger picture uh, of what we're looking at in Matthew's Gospel tonight. Father, in your majesty, uh, you use many people from throughout history to accomplish your purposes. So, Lord, in your mercy, please show us tonight how you work throughout all of history to bring about your eternal plan of redemption through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Please show us in your sovereignty how you work through a strange and often checkered family tree full of sinners and broken people to bring about the Saviour who would fix the brokenness of our souls. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, well, if you don't know the Old Testament, uh, you don't know Jesus. If you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. These words echoed around the conference room in Canberra at a national training event one evening. Now, if you don't know what a national training event is, otherwise known as NTE, uh, it's an event where once a year, students from all over Australia who are part of various campus Christian groups uh, from the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, otherwise known as AFES, they come together all in one place in Canberra to be trained up in the reading of God's Word, in understanding of God's Word, and even the teaching of God's Word. Now, some of you uh, sitting in this room may have been to one or two of these in the past, and you'd know what it was like uh, pre-COVID times. Every night, thousands of students would gather in a large hall. They'd pack their way in to sing together, to pray together, and to hear God's word unpacked. And this year, there was a single sentence that rocked the room to its core. The speaker claimed, if you don't know the Old Testament then you don't know Jesus. Now, for many of us in the room, this was a pretty hard pill to swallow. For two reasons it was. Uh, Most of us, for example, at this stage in our Christian walk, uh, we felt like we were fairly mature, but we didn't really have a thorough grasp of the Old Testament. And secondly, we thought we were pretty chummy with Jesus already from what we knew of the New Testament. And besides, there were more important things to talk about than the Old Testament like whether you followed the five points of Calvinism or the seven points if you were extremely godly. Like why atheists were really stupid and dumb for not thinking that God exists and how we as Christians are just so clever and so smart. Or maybe even which mode of baptism really worked and was more important and on and on and on and it went. So in that conference room that evening, when the words echoed around, if you don't know the Old Testament then you don't know Jesus. Many of us sat in an awkward silence. Yet in the Christian life, there is a truth to this. And as we open Matthew's Gospel tonight, uh, and in the coming weeks, we'll see what I mean. Matthew, this man is concerned with the identity of Jesus, and he thinks it is inseparably tied to the Old Testament. He's so concerned, arguably more than any other gospel author, about the identity of Jesus as understood from everything in the previous testament. 
And we'll see what I mean by this in a moment. So if you have uh, outlines or you go to outlines.kpc.org.au, you can pull them up there. We're going to start at point one. Uh, Matthew is con extremely concerned with the identity of Jesus. Now, in a clean-out of my parents' house, uh, my mum found this badge, and all it had on it was the words, Think Hebrew. It was bright yellow with black text, Think Hebrew. It was a strange badge. I didn't know whether my mum was part of a cult of some sort or whether she was wearing it as a, a political statement about the state of Israel or something else. But then she explained it to me. She said that he, she and uh, all of her Bible study, they were going through studies on what we call biblical theology, which is basically another way of saying uh, how we trace the plan of salvation throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New, all throughout church history. And these badges that they wore uh, were an attempt to keep them looking at salvation history in light of its unfolding nature, rather than to just skip straight forward to Jesus as the answer. They were to trace the themes uh, all throughout the Bible of promise and fulfilment, as if they didn't know the ending, in order to see the majesty of God at work throughout all the scriptures. Think Hebrew. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, this is effectively one of the key themes he's highlighting. Think Hebrew. Or to put it another way, if you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. Matthew assumes a certain level of biblical literacy for his readers because a thorough grasp of the Old Testament, according to him, is essential to properly understanding the life and the work and the teaching and the full ministry of Jesus. And so what we'll find, uh, if we take a bigger picture of Matthew, is that he is thoroughly reliant upon the Old Testament and is reliant upon this to add some depth to Jesus, to add some colour to Jesus and to add some depth and colour to understanding God's chosen one, his anointed one, who ends up being Jesus. So let me give you some brief examples to help highlight this point. Uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of uh, Jesus' fulfilment uh, in terms of prophecy in Matthew, uh, the meaning of the title Christ, and how Matthew paints Jesus as a new type of whatever in the Old Testament, a new type of David, a new type of Moses, and so on. And these will be fairly quick, just to lay a quick foundation of the bigger picture of Matthew before we hone in on the genealogy. So the first thing uh, Matthew highlights is this phrase, to fulfill. Uh, this phrase is used around 16 times in Matthew's Gospel, which is significantly more than any other Gospel, and it's almost always used in reference to something the Old Testament prophets had to say. So on screen are a few examples, uh, Matthew 1.22. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. 2.23, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. 4.13 to 14. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. You get the idea. Matthew is so concerned with the identity of Jesus that in his efforts to write down this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, more than any other gospel writers, he writes about Jesus' connection with stuff that was promised and predicted in the Old Testament long, long ago. 
He writes specifically concerning stuff that was pointing to God's Messiah. And that brings us to the, the second idea I want to highlight in this first point. Uh, namely, that, that Matthew wants to highlight that Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is God's Messiah as predicted in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the very, very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. Matthew opens his gospel with these incredible words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Messiah, it's a very particular word here. In the Old Testament, it literally meant God's anointed one. So when you see Messiah, think God's anointed one. Now, the New Testament, it does uh, carry on the use of this word, but it's probably something slightly more familiar to many of you, and that is the word Christ. It's the same word. So Messiah is just the Old Testament word. Christ is the New Testament word. Uh, It's effectively the same thing. It's all pointing to God's anointed one. And just a quick myth buster, uh, in case you weren't aware, uh, when we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, uh, we're not referring to his family name. So his mum wasn't Mary Christ, and his dad, Joseph Christ, you know, they trot along to the shopping mall and they get their family portrait and everyone goes, oh, look, there's the Christ family coming. No, it's not a family name, it's a title, right? It's referring to who Jesus is, God's anointed one predicted long ago. Uh, if it helps, whenever you see uh, the phrase Jesus Christ, just add the in between there, as in Jesus the Christ, Jesus who is the Christ, Jesus who is the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what the title is. And so dovetailing off this, uh, if, if you've read uh, the NIV tonight or you were listening to James uh, read from the NIV himself, it uses the word Messiah here. But Matthew actually writes the word Christ, and some of you will have a footnote linking to this. Um, But as I've just said, it is the same thing. Uh, But the reason I bring this up uh, is because occasionally the New Testament authors do throw their own uh, little interpretation on there to help us understand what is being said. And I think this instance in the NIV, to some degree, can be helpful because it's highlighting that in this first book of the New Testament, the link between God's Christ, God's chosen one, with the Old Testament. It's pointing back to where they use the word Messiah. But I just want to let you know uh, that there is a difference in there. Some will say Christ, some will say Messiah. They mean the same thing. So the last thing I want to highlight, uh, which is worth noticing, uh, is Matthew's concern for the identity of Jesus in the way that he paints Jesus as a new type of XYZ, so a new type of David or Moses uh, or Abraham. How do we know this? We're not going to work through all of them, but I just want to give one little taster uh, for you to go and do your own research later on if you like. Uh, Moses. So if you remember Moses, this is the guy who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, uh, and perhaps he's most famous for holding up the Ten Commandments inscribed on those stone tablets. You may have heard the joke uh, that Moses is the first guy to download files from the cloud using a tablet. Just going for the cheap laughs tonight. That was Moses. But more than this, he's attributed to being the author of the first five books of the Bible. 
right, which, which is also known as the books of the law. So these first five books, they are extremely important uh, for Jewish people even to this day. And now Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, through the ingeniousness of his mind, he decides to build this gospel in a way that kind of mirrors this slightly. So his gospel is shaped around five significant speeches of Jesus, uh, one of which we'll be going through in the morning service shortly. And so if you put two and two together, you begin to realise uh, that Matthew, he's painting Jesus as a new type of Moses. He's painting Jesus as someone who has come with a new law, a new teaching, a new way to live. And he does this through his intricate and carefully constructed gospel around these five major speeches. So the reason I've done all this and laid all this groundwork is to help you see how Matthew is extremely concerned with the identity of Jesus and that in particular, how he jumps off what was written about him in the Old Testament. Right? He is the fulfillment of everything predicted about him, everything that was said about the Messiah, the anointed one in the Old Testament. In a nutshell, Matthew is warning us all that if you don't know the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. So having laid that foundation, uh, it's time to move on uh, to the reason I subjected James Cashman to the full reading tonight. Uh, I did have a choice, but I thought it would be great for him and for you and for me to hear all of this, uh, and that is the genealogy, because I could add that as a fourth point on here, but it's actually going to make up the major second point of the sermon. So the genealogy, this is just another way that Matthew connects this with the Old Testament. So given today's reading, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about this uh, before we finish up on point three, looking at some of the highlights, uh, or perhaps what you could better call lowlights, from Jesus' family heritage, as we've read in Matthew 1. So we're going to keep moving to point two. Genealogies are very important. Now, we all have family trees. Uh, we've all had to come from somewhere. But I'm not sure many of us would even know the names of some of our closest relatives. I'd be surprised, for example, if you knew the names of all of your great-grandparents. And if you do, well, well done. It's a sign you love your family so much. If you're like me, on the other hand, occasionally you struggle to name even your grandparents. Uh, I've only known mine as Granny and Grandpa, Pop and Grandma, and I know their names, but I sometimes have to stop and hesitate and think. Two generations, and I've already forgotten to some degree. Now, interestingly, there has been uh, a resurgence in interest uh, with our family heritage. Uh, as Tom said in the beginning, things like Ancestry.com and uh, other websites, they give us a tool to access fresh insights into where we've come from, who we're connected with. Uh, whether we were shipped over here as part of the penal colony or whether we're related to someone important in history. A lot of people suddenly have a bit of an interest in this and want to lay a claim to fame. Now, here in Matthew, Jesus, he didn't need to take a cotton swab. He didn't need to wipe it on the inside of his mouth or up his nose and send it away for DNA testing to find out who he was. Why is that? Well, the first and obvious one is that these things didn't exist back then. But more to the point... He didn't have to do this because his Jewish heritage, his Jewish family tree, really mattered in the first century, and so did it for many Jews. It mattered for things like access to certain parts of temple worship, 
It mattered to things like where you can go in certain parts of the city and what hours. Uh, In this instance, it mattered to Matthew because it legally connected him to the throne of David, among other things. And so as we read in the opening words of Matthew, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, literally a book of the genesis or the origins of Jesus Christ. Matthew is concerned about where Jesus came from because he's making the bold claim that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was predicted. He is God's anointed. And for any Jewish person hearing this claim, well, their first thought would be, prove it. You know, show us that Jesus is the Messiah. Because, I mean, we have all the scriptures. We know what was predicted about him. Uh, Which tribe was he from? Tell us. You know, where, where was he born? Show me all of his credentials. Prove to me that this is the guy you're claiming him to be. And so what Matthew does, in a way that sometimes may confuse us as modern readers, well, he primes his audience to take them for a journey down memory lane as he demonstrates in these first 17 verses of Matthew the link between Jesus as the everlasting heir of the throne of King David and as the fulfilment of all the promises given to Abraham. And this is hinted at in the very first verse when Jesus singles out David and Abraham. He says, this, this is a book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in so doing this, in singling out Abraham and David, uh, he draws together uh, this theme of promise and fulfillment, which is so important as we're following the overarching story of the Bible. So promises given to Abraham to some extent, are partially fulfilled in David. And promises given to David are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I won't go into too much detail here, but uh, a great memory verse, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, this is where God gives Abraham the promises of a land, promises of a great people, and promise that someone from Abraham's line would bless all the nations, that he would ultimately be a blessing to all nations. And this is partially fulfilled in King David's era, because... He's in a land, they've got a great nation, and if you follow him down to Solomon, to some degree you could argue they're blessing the nations around them. But ultimately this is all fulfilled in Jesus. And so Jews in the first century who are living off the back of many of these promises, who are keenly aware of what this Messiah should look like, they're thirsty and they're hungry for the Messiah, the Christ, to show up and be the ultimate fulfilment of all the promises that they've kept for so long. And so this genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, this long list of names, well, it's Matthew's way of demonstrating that the long-awaited Messiah, who was promised long ago, has finally broken into history to fulfil these promises. So while a list of names might seem a little dry for us, while it might seem a bit funny as we stumble over trying to pronounce the names and and ignore half of them because we have no idea who they are, I think it's exciting and momentous and absolutely critical when you understand what's going on here. And while we may have little care uh, for family trees, though, as I said, I think there's a, a trend that's changing that, while we may have little care for family trees, this wasn't the case 2,000 years ago. So I'm hoping by now that we're at least uh, beginning to see why genealogies are very important and why hearing all those names tonight 
was a good exercise in understanding why it was important. But what I want to do is finish up today in point three. Uh, And in here, we're going to have a lightning tour of some of the key players that make up Jesus' family tree. And I want to do this in order to help you see that God in his sovereignty uses a messy family tree to bring about his purposes. And Matthew himself is not shy of this awkward fact. In fact, he seems to go out of his way to include some of the awkward bits so that we know. So it brings us to point three. God uses a messy family tree to bring about his purposes. Now, I was alarmed uh, at one point in my studies at QTC. Uh, I was studying uh, for our ethics class, and I was alarmed at how close we are as a society in creating the perfect designer babies and how close we are at being able not only to, to buck the trend of inherited diseases um, or undesirable features, but that we're just around the corner from being able to design a baby completely from the ground up. A baby that can look and be whatever we want it to be by altering its DNA. You want jet black hair, no more heart disease, a high IQ, long fingers and arms to be the perfect basketball player maybe. You got it, can be done. Well, almost, we're not quite there yet. But it is scary to think about. It's scary to think that we're on the cusp of being able to make whatever human being we desire with whatever traits we want through scientific advancements. However, as ethically ambiguous might be a good word to put in there as this is, uh, there is something a little wild about this concept, something a little disturbing and yet weirdly amazing. Now, don't hear me wrong, I'm in no way advocating for this at all. I think there's a whole Pandora's box of ethical questions that have to be answered and answered well before even mildly considering going down this path. However, what I think is even more amazing is that the perfect person can come from an imperfect family tree, and it's already happened in the man Jesus. Now, we don't have to uh, go through all of these names. I don't think you guys are wanting to sit through a six-hour talk on Perez or anyone else in that list. Um, So what I'm going to do is take us through a quick highlights package of some of these names uh, to make this point before we wrap up. So I'm going to start with the obvious one, uh, King David. Now, this man, uh, he's famous for his keen eye on Bathsheba and his willingness to murder her husband Uriah Uh, because he accidentally impregnated her one evening. Now, what he did is he attempted to pull Uriah from the front lines. This man was one of David's soldiers, and he attempted to pull him from the front lines and give him some rest, give him some time with his wife in the hopes that they would sleep together, and then it would give him an alibi for the fact that she fell pregnant with his baby. But this didn't work. In fact, Uriah was such an amazing man that he refused to sleep with his wife on the basis of the fact that he loved his country, he loved his king, and the Ark of Israel was out in battle with all of his brothers battling for him. So he couldn't in good conscience leave the battle, spend some rest time with his spouse if the war is still raging on. And so he decides not to. So David, after a few attempts trying to coerce him into doing this, he eventually kind of goes, stuff it, it's easy to kill him, and then I can take Bathsheba as my wife, and the whole problem goes away. 
Simple as that. Great man, King David. Jacob, in verse 2 of the genealogy. Well, this guy, he was a classic cheat. Uh, He stole both his brother's birthright in Genesis 25, if you remember the story with Jacob and Esau. And he also stole his father's deathbed blessing in Genesis 27, two chapters later. He's a serial cheat. Judah, well, this man, he was a bit of a womanizer. Uh, And in Genesis 38, his will got the best of him and he decided to sleep with a prostitute. And this brings us to the next name on the list, Tamar, who wasn't a prostitute, but in the story she dressed as a prostitute so that Judah would sleep with her. It's wild, the Bible story. And if you follow Jesus' genealogy, you see that all of these instances and all of these occurrences of of weird things happen actually make up the family line that finishes with Jesus. So you can see that his family tree is looking pretty interesting right about now. And while we're on the topic of uh, women in Jesus' family tree, I thought I'd bring this one up because the young adults are going through it. Uh, Ruth. Now, Ruth, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, she was a good lady. She did a lot of good. Uh, She accepted uh, the Israelite God as her God and loved and served and committed herself uh, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. But she did have one massive flaw in that she was a Moabite. And the thing about Moabites is that they were a nation brought about through an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. Messy, messy, messy. Now, I could go on, but I I think you get the picture here. Jesus' family tree, it is full of people who are absolutely broken and messy. But I think apart from Matthew simply recording history here, he's creating this list... This, this selective list of people, because they not only show the brokenness and the messiness of human life in all its gory detail, but they also point us to the fact that God, in his sovereignty, is always working behind the scenes, despite all of our mess. Using broken people here in Matthew 1, using his family, his parents, his grandparents and great-grandparents, All of these kind of messed up relationships led to the birth of the Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen one. And even more amazing is that God not only used a string of broken people to bring us Jesus, but he did this to bring us the one, the one who would save his people from their sins. So in verse 21, I'm skipping ahead to next week's passage just a little bit here, but it is worth taking a look at. Because there is this amazing symbolism that in the same chapter, you have this list of broken people counterbalanced by this promise in verse 21 that Jesus' mission was to come and save his people from their sins. Now, it's not saying that he saved everyone in his genealogical record, uh, far from it, but it's designed for the readers of the gospel for you and I to marvel at God's amazing grace, all contained within these names. That despite our sin and our failure, God is not stopped in any way from enacting his plan of salvation. That despite our sin and our failure, God has the power to save us through his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. 
So as we consider where we've gone through tonight's passage, we've kind of jumped around quite a bit in many different areas. Uh, There are perhaps two major points of application that I want to draw to your attention this evening. The first is a bit of a simple question. It's this. In your devotions, are you reading the whole Bible? Are you reading the whole Bible, the entire thing? Because if you have a favourite book and you find that you're reading that over and over again or you think that some of the Old Testament books are a bit confusing so you leave them behind, then may I suggest that a good habit to get into would be to stop doing that and start reading the entire Bible for what it is. Uh, There are plenty of practical ways of doing this. There's all kinds of apps on your phone. You can look online. There's Bible reading plans everywhere. But I want to recommend these because these get you reading some of the messier bits. They get you reading all the bits that help you understand Matthew 1. They help you actually have your own trip down memory lane as you see these names and go, yeah, I remember who they were. I remember how messy some of this stuff was. I remember how glorious that time was in their their history. More than that is that all the scriptures point to Jesus. He himself says this. And so you'll be confronted with things about Jesus that you may never have even realized were there. And ultimately, I think God's spirit as well will be working with you as you read and get deeper and deeper into who he is through all of the scriptures. Secondly, what the passage teaches us is that God is sovereign over all of history, that he can take any broken vessel and use it to accomplish his purposes. And Jesus' genealogy here is a prime example of God working through all kinds of messy people and situations to bring about his purposes. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking that you've got too much baggage you're carrying with you, or if you're thinking, why, why would God use me? Like, I've got too much personal brokenness I'm carrying behind me here. I want you to take heart that God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than your anxieties. He's bigger than your selfishness. He's bigger than your imperfections. He's bigger than anything that you think is going to cripple you from being effective in the ministry. And so perhaps this week, it might be worth taking a good look down uh, the list of people in Matthew 1 and knowing that God's Messiah, Jesus, well, this one came to save you from your sins. And he can work through you powerfully for his kingdom as well. So as we finish up, how about I pray and we ponder these things? Father God, we thank you that in this long list of names, this long list of broken people throughout history, that you brought perfection in your son out of the imperfect. Lord, we thank you that in your sovereignty, you work through all of history to bring about your kingdom, your purposes, your plans. Help us this evening, Lord, to have a thirst for your word, to want to read all of it for what it is. Help us to encourage one another to be steeped in the words that we don't often look at, in the books of the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament that may scare us. Lord, help us to read all your word and seeing Jesus in light of it. And Father, I pray that for us who are broken, 
for us who feel the weight of our anxieties or think that we aren't good enough to work for you. I pray that your spirit would be at work helping us to see Jesus as your chosen one, the one who came to take away our sins. And help us, Lord, to be bold and confident in the salvation that he offers. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.